Welcome back to Conversations of the Leaky Cauldron, episode 14, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix Chapters. 29, 30, 31, 32, and 33. And back with me are my esteemed colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, you two. Hey, good to be back. Greetings. Greetings. Great to have y'all. Salud and bottoms up. And uh, just to get the night started in the right sort of way. And so I thought we might just start with career advice. Hmm. What did, what did y'all think about that po- power dynamic, that interaction between McGonagall and Umbridge? And uh, what did you think about Harry and his um, not really knowing what he's going to do in his future? And do you relate that to anything in your own lives? And, um, and yeah, and what about that confrontation at the end between Minerva McGonagall and Dolores Umbridge where Minerva, I, I think Minerva McGonagall says, some, uh, Professor McGonagall, I should say, says something to the effect of, she will, she will make sure that Potter is an auror uh, if it takes every resource at her availability. Like uh, essentially, over her dead body, she will make sure to do that. Um, and so, yeah, what do y'all think about career advice? I, I mean, I can relate to it a bit. I guess. Um... I've definitely been there where like I had an important meeting and I forget and then I show up late and I'm all flustered and the people there are like, Oh, it's okay. But then it's like very tense and not okay at all. Uh, But it's, you know, in this case, it's mostly um, sort of like under the surface at first. And then it just gradually comes more and more, um, you know, direct until they're the two of them, McGonagall and Umbridge who are like, you know, complete opposites are just, shouting at each other you know it's it's fantastic and um i think harry probably learns more in that little interaction than he does in uh in most of his classes this year oh bold um i i too uh related pretty significantly to this passage i think the thing that uh or this chapter the thing that thing that struck me about it was how often I, I'm, of course, I sympathize with McGonagall in this situation, right? Umbridge is reprehensible. Um, and she has no right, really, to be in this meeting, I think. Um, uh, or it, this would be, this is like a heavy break with custom that this meeting is supposed to be between the student and their head of house. Um, that being said, I, I do think that very often um, young people, like, the ch- like children in our society can be used as a as a battleground on which we can fight our various battles for dominance or power. Um, and this thing is not about Harry's future. I mean, this this scene, as much as it should be, becomes about them. And while one of them is clearly in the right and one of them is clearly in the wrong, and yes, this is educational for Harry. I. I did sort of feel as though, um, uh, and while Umbridge certainly provokes McGonagall, um, you know, this is, I think, a, an example of adults like fucking shit up um, when kids are involved. And um, I also thought, I, I know that it's supposed to sort of represent like the British educational system where there's these major tests when you're 15 and 16, and then you sort of start to specialize what you take classes in. Um, And this, this book doesn't really, 
presume like university. So uh, maybe like years one through five are high school and years six and seven are the equivalent of university. But I really sympathize with them like looking through all of these pamphlets and like not knowing what they want to do because like no 16 year old genuinely knows what they want to do. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think, uh, I don't know. Yeah. But that was kind of silly. No, well, I agree because it's sort of like, and especially in this time and age when it's not as if when you get a liberal arts degree, you just become a preacher or lawyer or doctor, um, sort of, by itself, but there are so many people now that have access to sort of a liberal arts education who then are presented with a world in which they have to hyper-specialize whether they go into academia or not, right? Like if you're working IT, you're probably working on the same sort of problems all the time, uh, frankly speaking, while also learning how technology grows and innovates ar around you. But it just makes me think, <clears throat> sorry, losing my train of thought thinking about IT there and just depressing myself. Um, but at the end of graduate school, if you were to ask me what my skill set was, I would have said translating ancient Greek, ultimate Frisbee and CrossFit. Like I had a general sense that when I competed against other people, I tended to do pretty well, but I didn't really have a specific skill set. I know how to teach as I well know now. I, I didn't really know how to do anything of, uh, adult sophistication or importance. I wasn't a master of any technical skills at that point in time. So I feel very much like Harry was like, yeah, I think I'm okay at Quidditch um, and have done like, and, and can like shoot a Patronus. But, uh, you know, he's like a middling student too. And then all of a sudden he has these high aspirations to be an Aurora as, as my, uh, as Jim Dale uh, pronounces it. I, I guess I say or, but um, I, I totally agree that I relate to the situation of being like, how do I funnel my being into a role in society? It's like, even in this magical world where you can be so much more than you might've been as a muggle, you still have to sort of home yourself in on a task. And uh, it, it's sort of interesting too, because so many of them work for the government, for the Ministry of Magic. Um, I, I don't know that you really hear a lot about other jobs outside of that. Like there seem to be Hogwarts professors, Ministry of Magic officials, uh, and then what, like tame magical beasts or, or go uh, unlock Gringotts uh, treasure troves. I, I wonder if that means be a scholar. Um, but uh, we can talk more about that, or would you all like to move on to the grand finale of the Weasleys? And, well, yes. I thought, that, I thought that maybe the grand finale of the Weasleys was sort of like a rebuke of the career advice right? Like that um, the way that career advice is, is delivered at this school is a little archaic to me um, and, and formulaic that like, oh, you're going to meet with the head of house and you're going to talk about what you like and then you're going to find some courses. Hopefully you've, hopefully we're not having this conversation too late because you actually need like O's and E's on these OWLs that are coming up pretty right quick. Um, but like Fred and George have an incredible exit from the fireworks to the swamp. And, you know, they already have their, um, they already have their location in Diagon Alley. And like, I would, I would just hazard a guess that like that meeting they had with McGonagall two years ago when they were fifth years, like either they said they wanted to own a joke shop and they got laughed out of the room or they didn't say that, right? Like, 
it, it reminded me of, you know, those like those silly tests that they made us take in, in high school, like in addition to your aptitude, like what job should you have? You know, like um, almost as though like the Weasley's route of this was like, find what you're passionate about, like find ways to get better at it. And then like maybe kind of find a way to monetize it. And if that doesn't involve being hired into some, into some kind of like corporate world, then like, then here's an example of people who like fuck this trend, you know? Um, I don't know. I, that, I sort of, I didn't get the sense that we were supposed to look at the Hogwarts career advice and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's how to do it. Um, certainly just as a, as a teacher, like uh, so many kids are presented with so many different options. I think that's one of like the things of our generation that like, Oh, you know, look at all of the many skills you have. You can be whatever you want. And like, that's cool. But that there's also a paralysis of choice that comes with that. Um, but yeah, I thought, I thought it was interesting how they, they make their escape um, using the same spell that Harry used back against the dragon, you know? And so that's like putting, you know, umbrage in the, in the position of the dragon in, in some way, or, or maybe like what she represents, you know, this whole kind of, heavy and dull bureaucratic um, education system, you know, which the, the Weasleys, yeah, definitely like repudiate here <laughs> and uh, pretty strongly uh, decide that they're, they're, they've had enough of it. Um, and in between those two scenes though, there's also this bit where Harry, you know, sneaks in and, and uses the flu powder to talk to Sirius and, and Lupin's there too. It's like um, he gets to, sort of get their their side of what he saw in Snape's uh, worst memory. And I thought that was kind of interesting too, that that's, you know, a, a form of career advice in a way. It's like, you know, clarifying for him some major hangups that are still kind of impeding him thinking clearly about maybe some more immediately important things. But but this is clearly like deeply troubling him. And so they, they really ni- nicely, um, kind of talk him through that and, and give him support here um so I thought yeah. that was interesting too. like like the career advice that you that that they're after giving these students is not about what kind of person you grow up to be it's about like what your um you know what your nine to five paycheck earning job is going to be and I, I I think it is interesting how kind of single-minded he becomes at like trying to trying to reconcile a, a like a a love for a father he never knew um and all the stories he's heard about him with what he sees and like that is an important part of your career I don't know where that word comes from maybe maybe you do Alex but like, yeah it's a um, it, it it, it's a mixture of two words to careen, which means to move out of control and curry to run. So it's about the worst possible word that exists. It means to run out of control, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Just like, so like he's less interested in what he's going to be when he grow up than who he's, who he's going to be when he grows up. You know, if so many people have said, oh, you're just like your father, you're just like your father, I think he's more interested in, and I think kids at his age should be more interested in um, who they're going to be when they grow up than what they're going to be when they grow up. Um, 
that to me, I mean, I think that's part of the message, right? I, I agree that who and what are both very, very important. Um, and I, yeah, I just wanted to ask a question about that. Why, why, why do you think Lupin and Sirius defend James in that moment? Um, why is it, yeah, why is it so important to them to uh, try and give Harry a richer picture of his father? Because it, it is so interesting that that part is just sort of in there and that this is something worth the risk for Harry in a way that nothing else has been. Um, and so why, why exactly? I mean, I, their main argument seems to be that they were young and dumb, right? They're idiots and, you know, they, they really uh, don't want Harry to kind of make up his mind based on this one, you know, very dramatic episode, which, it seems fair, I guess, but they, they also sort of point out like little details that he might have overlooked or, or rather like they put them in a different light, like the, the playing with the snitch, you know, and, and the dynamic between James and Lily. They, they sort of just like, you know, wax a little nostalgic about those things. And, you know, clearly to them, they, they meant something different than the way that Harry saw them kind of um, out of context or whatever, you know. Um, I I think it's probably also to an extent them getting to kind of finally unburden themselves a little bit with Harry. Like, you know, they don't have to pretend that his dad was like perfect or something, you know, like he's old enough mm -hmm. now and he's, you know, literally seen some of the blemishes there. So they can sort of like level with him a bit. And that just makes him, you know, more of a real person too, which is probably good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what do you think, Alex? What do you, what do you think about this? I, I don't. I, I frank, frankly, I I don't know. It's interesting because we were talking about the connection between Snape and Harry last time, and obviously it is a sort of bitter, resentful connection. But also they they share this feeling. This he Harry feels this tremendous empathy for his enemy, and so in some way I wonder if this is a prefiguration of that which will enable him to defeat Voldemort at some point that even though he has to sort of tarnish the image of the father and he'll have to later do that with Dumbledore too, both figures sort of coming down to human proportions after being sort of godlike divine. I mean, literally he thought that a stag of light was cast by his father in the third book. Uh, that, that's pretty, you know, I would say heavy God imagery uh, or, or aliens if you just want to interpret it in a more sci-fi, but, exactly the same archetype route, you know, super being in heaven can shoot beams of light that transport people uh, without, without, with or without their bodies. In any case, um, I, I just wonder if, if it is because of this pain that Harry is enduring and emotions have been such a major part of the whole series, but especially this book, anger, rage and resentment, some more complex emotions too. We've seen Ron with a lot of that. Um, but, um, that it is precisely because Harry confronts this pain, or this is my hypothesis, is it precisely because Harry confronts this pain that he will have the strength of character necessary to defeat the sort of Luciferian Voldemort, who, who nobody can be equal to, who doesn't admit, I think, his own flaws, or, or uh, and certainly doesn't forgive them in a Darth Vader-like way. Um, that's about as far as I've got. Um, yeah. I think, I think there's something 
um, really, um, I guess, I think there's something mature about Harry um, kind of being unwilling to let go of what he saw of his father. Um, because, you know, um, I'm teaching uh, a play called All My Sons right now. And one of the questions is also, I think, a question that Oedipus the King sort of um, treats on, which is like, what's better, truth or harmony? Like, is it is it better for us to face facts and be honest with each other, even if it really hurts, even if our relationships suffer? Um, or, you know, are there some circumstances under which it's acceptable to lie or it's acceptable to hide the truth or it's acceptable to just avoid the truth um, for the sake of, of a conflict-free zone or of, of peace, you know? And at, like, at what price can you purchase relational harmony, right, if any? Um, and I guess I think, I, think it, I think it takes a lot of maturity to not reject facts, i.e. things that you've witnessed, um, because they don't fit your narrative, right? Um, and sure. I think, you, you know, I, I think that that's, that's really mature. I mean, I'm not going to say that Harry handles all of his emotions in a, in a mature fashion. No. I think what, the, what Lupin and Sirius point out is that, like, this too is one data point, right? Like, um, that there are a lot of other things that Snape didn't have in his pensive and that Snape maybe never even saw, and that like we're a lot, everybody is, a, is more, and to quote Brian Stevenson, we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. So I, I think there's something to him, like being willing to face the flaws of his own father, and again, like you mentioned, the flaws of Dumbledore, but also like um, being, having the capacity for mercy, or at least being instructed to have that capacity, um, even if in the moment, I think Sir what Sirius and James tell him isn't terribly satisfying to him, um, or if it is, um, it certainly wasn't to me. Um, but like, I think being able to empathize with and then also forgive the imperfections in another as, what, as well as those in yourself, um, because I, that to me is, authentic right if you just pretend like people don't have imperfections um or that they're not in some way flawed then your mercy or your 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 openness your hospitality to them is is meaningless right i think we sort of talked about this in book four when we were talking about the differences between the two school schools that came to visit right like Durmstrang Durmstrang was like not at all open to people with um, different backgrounds and then um, uh, what's it called? Bo, Bo Batten is like really open to people with different backgrounds, but like not, doesn't really like walk the walk of that. Um, I don't know. I, I think that you're right that it does maybe present us with a character who is in the midst of learning by failing and trying again to be both like honest and kind. Um, at the same time, which is pretty hard, I think. It seems like about the hardest thing in the world to do. The Jungians call it the contrast between eros, connection, harmony, like you, I like how you said it more, and logos, which is sort of truth. And it is for sure true that truth can upset some harmony. 
Um, but okay, so we go from the sophisticated chapter with this glorious ending to Grop. Um, the first thing I just sort of wanted to ask you about while also sort of just noting this is, gosh, what a bummer that we didn't get to see this Quidditch game. We're, I feel denied Quidditch as well. And I think that was a masterful stroke by J.K. Rowling because not only is Harry being denied, but we're being denied too. And what a performance that we miss. Uh, also, that inversion of Weasley as our king, I thought was a nice touch. I'd like to hear y'all's comments on. But what about the fact that we have to leave this Quidditch match? We can't support Ron. And we really see, I feel, another side of Hagrid uh, that we haven't seen before when he confronts the centaurs, um, as well as um, seeing sort of its opposite with relationship to his giant brother, who is now in a long line of dangerous things that, that Hagrid loves. Um, the giant uh, Aramacula, or, or I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably, or the giant Arachnid, essentially. The giant, um, I forget what they're called in in the harry potter series maybe one of you remembers uh also norbert the dragon and of course buckbeak as well he he loves all of these things but what do you all think of grop what do you all think of the fact that we miss quidditch what do you all think about the a scene the sort of dangerous side of hagrid or the defiant side as well as the sort of loving and nurturing side yeah i, I like those good questions um i think you know it kind of goes along with the the mercy and forgiveness sort of thing that Sarah's developed in there. Because um, Hagrid has all along sort of represented that to an extent with, with all of these magical creatures. And, you know, that's clearly something J.K. Rowling is really interested in. Um, that seems to be where she's gone with the, uh, the new film series all about sort of, well, I don't know. It's like structured around care of magical creatures, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, and in turn, like delving into the past, you know, the, the dark secrets behind all these characters and those things seem to be kind of intertwined. Um, and so it's interesting that, you know, this next level of Hagrid caring for a creature turns out to be, a, you know, a, a giant, uh, a brother of his, you know, essentially like, you know, someone just like him. But that's, you know, how he's always seen these creatures. It seems like they're all sort of like outcasts and you know, just need someone who will love them. And, um, and in a way, he's always been blind to their dangers. And that's like more obvious than ever here. He's getting like literally beat up, you know, and having to, <laughs> having to um, pretend that that doesn't bother him a little bit. Um, and, and maybe it doesn't actually, because he seems to honestly not realize how dangerous this is to have uh, Harry and Hermione, you know, have to deal with this now that there's the very real possibility soon to be carried out, you know, that he'll have to leave Hogwarts. Um, but yeah, so then it's interesting to co contrast it with his treatment of the centaur uh, troop here and how, um, you know, sassy he is towards them. Um, he's, he's got this kind of rough edge that, yeah, we haven't really seen directly before, but it's, it's hinted at, you know, of course. Um, after all, how did he get the dragon egg in the first place, right? So I, I thought the... Uh, the centaurs, you know, um, <laughs> they're they're carrying off of umbrage is like it's up there with the uh, the fireworks and everything. It's it's great and, and Dumbledore's exit. You know, there's some like really nice set pieces here. And so yeah, it's very interesting that one of those is in the form of the absence of Quidditch. You know, we just see the aftermath of it, which is yeah, really cool. And you know, Ron is like the man, which is great. 
Yeah, I think it's funny that, like, the first time Ron actually is successful, we don't see it, you know? <laughs> like, um, I know it's not the first time that he's successful, but it's, like, I, I do find it, and I find it funny, like, how quickly that goes to his head, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you, who am I to judge? I think, like, if it were me, and I'm sure it has been, I'd be reliving that as well. We but, see um, king. <laughs> Um, and don't he know it? I, uh, I, I, sort, I agree with, I agree with you, Wes, Wes, that like, it's interesting to see Hagrid, like those sides of him. Um, and I think the reintroduction of the centaurs is at the very least effective for, um, like structurally, um, reminding the reader that those people are there and that they don't like, um, Hogwarts or at least, um, they could be a threat to safety and that, that when they do um, reappear later, that, that seems valuable. Um, but I, I think something that, that, I, that struck me as funny um, was that Hermione is like so angry at, uh, at Hagrid for doing this, yes. for bringing Grop back to the forest, um, for uh, asking her and, um, uh, Harry and Ron to take care of him and you know Hermione is this is this voice of reason she does sort of sort of lose it a little bit when she's studying for the OWLs but she's also like she's a voice of reason when Harry has the dream right um she keeps her um herself cool and calm and collected and she has a plan to test out whether or not um Harry's being tempted by Voldemort uh, you know we'll find out that 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 was, you know, well-intentioned, but maybe not as effective. But um, I just, uh, it struck me as interesting that this was a bridge too far for her. Um, And she can, um, you know, like, especially considering her um, compassion for the house elves and how close she got with Hagrid um, in the third book, um, you know, working on his defense of Buckbeak how 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 often she is the one to stand up for the outcast and the outsider. It struck me as interesting that this she still thought was inappropriate, like considering all of the alternatives and all of the uh, risks and stuff this was this was over the line i'm I'm curious what you all thought about why, but um I also think like just in this in this idea of like caring for magical creatures, right? Like sometimes we know that caring for means, means like taking care of or protecting. And sometimes caring for someone or something means like calling it to be better, right? Um, And I wonder if that's sort of when Hagrid is so defensive with the, um, with the, the centaurs, if that's his way of caring, like trying to care for them, like, um, uh, expressing a kind, I mean, it's pretty aggressive. I'll, I'll definitely grant that. But I wonder if that's sort of like a, 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 a theme to draw throughout all of his behavior that even to the end when he like gets his, he like beats a path into the forest out of, out of Hogwarts, he's like still carrying Fang, right? Um, a stunned dog on his back. Anyway, I, I wonder what you guys thought about Hermione's reaction to all this. Um, Harry's reaction wasn't surprising to me in any way, but um, hers was. What do you guys think? 
Well, it's interesting uh, the fact that he calls them mules, given the fact that that seems to be a derogatory term for a half-breed, given his particular lineage, and also uh, the attention that is drawn to Hermione's lineage by Draco Malfoy, um, that he, he would use that sort of language that, could, that he would clearly fight somebody over if he were to hear it said of one of his friends, especially someone like Hermione. I remember his reaction when, he, when we first were introduced to the concept of mudblood by Draco Malfoy. He said he didn't right after Ron had accidentally, uh, in the second book, um, hexed himself. But I also just think that this is a bridge too far for Hermione. This is so totally irresponsible. She's a prefect this year. She has additional responsibilities and she's studying for the OWLs. It, not to mention the fact that she's had to confront the fact that Professor Grubbly Plank to her is actually a better teacher than Hagrid. Thus, all these opinions about Hagrid that she does not want to believe because she is his, uh, his friend are turning into facts that he is not as good a teacher as another as another teacher is. And Hermione cares about that because she wants to do as well as possible on her OWLs. And also that he is so totally irresponsible. I, I think it also makes her sort of think, you know, Hagrid, this is why you got expelled. Not simply the malevolence of Lord Voldemort, but you, you know, you don't simply have a rough edge. You are, you, you know, you are careless. You, you, you have done something that is so clearly a violation of the norms that can get us injured and kicked out of here just, just because you are blinding yourself to the truth, I think is, is just, it's too much for her. She's done so much for Hagrid, as you say. She's, she worked with Buckbeak with him. She does care about oppressed creatures, but seeing, uh, I, I think this relates to the idea we were putting forward that Harry is willing to see the truth and then alter his map. This is like a breaking point for Hermione where, where Hagrid has to be, his position on her map has to be altered. He is no longer just lovable giant. There's, there is an air of, um, uh, I don't want to say, it's not incompetency, but it, it's like an emotional handicap that he has. Like you were saying, um, Wes, that he, he, he misses, or, or was it you, Sarah? I'm sorry, he misses how how dangerous these creatures truly are. And finally, he's brought the most dangerous possible creature that's even physically hurting him constantly. And he's asking them during this year to go out of their way to help this creature, which could, you know, potentially kill them. It's, it's just such a, uh, a not getting his hierarchies of value right that he and uh, Hermione, I think, are put at totally different ends of the spectrum to almost a breaking point. <laughs> Yeah, she um, she is kind of freaking out there at the end, right? She's like, Harry's telling her to calm down, and she's going off about the giant and having to give him English lessons and trying to get past the herd of murderous centaurs on the way in and out. <laughs> um, I don't believe him. That's That's a great line, right? Like, she, yeah, she had some kind of concept of, of Hagrid and you know he wasn't perfect but she was like I can work with this but at this point you know all of that hard work is, is looking like it's been wasted because he's not who she thought he was right her her idea of him is not quite not quite accurate right and um and yeah she's obviously stressed out about a lot of other stuff um so then it's great that you know the way the, <laughs> the chapter ends is with this other thing that we didn't see right you know and so just kind of playing on that that seeing and not seeing theme again. Um, 
and I, I think it's cool, um, yeah, that they, they take the words of the song and they change them a little. That reminded me a little of the Sorting Hat. You know, what it does is, is changes its song from year to year. Um, so there's like similarity and continuity within variation or, or vice versa, rather. And um, yeah, I think that's like a perfect sort of image for like what you do as, as a school, right? As an institution, like all the people in the school continually change, but all the sort of like forms and rules are more or less, you know, static or at least sort of like um, adaptable, but like not, not uh, completely thrown out. Um, so I, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, I, I, it's a fun chapter, and Grop, you know, as a as a student of English, is funny to think about, right? Like how that must horrify Hermione to have to like teach this person who's so difficult to, um, you know, to reach in some ways, like literally, but also obviously uh, intellectually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I did want to, I don't want to belabor this chapter, but I do want to ask about the difference between the centaur's prophecies and the magician's prophecies. Also, why do the, why do the centaurs hate the magicians or rather, why is it such a crime for them to serve a, um, a wizard? And why is it that they have to paint the situation of Frenzy leaving them as him going into servitude or leaving their pack? Why does it have to be that way? For them, why can't it be that he's going to help the humans and that that's fine? Is it is it a pride thing? Is it an issue with him trying to mess with the sort of predestination of the stars? Is he supposed to be like a Canto Fifteen from the Inferno, Brunetto Latini figure, or are they supposed to be Brunetto Latini figures who sort of believe if you follow your star, you cannot help to reach your glorious harbor, and that to try and uh, uh, mess with the affairs of men? is to sort of, I don't know, pit your will against the will of the stars. And, and is that, if that is what they're doing, is that a great inaccuracy in their way of looking at things? And is that why there are so few of them and they live in the woods? I don't know, Wes, what do you think about this one? Um, I had not thought of it quite like that, but that's a, I mean, that's a cool way to talk about the the conflict here like that makes sense when you when you put it that way um to see like what's at stake for the centaurs yeah it does seem to be something like their you know deepest held beliefs and and cultural traditions or something are, are like you know being peddled out to um to these disrespectful um brats up in the castle or you know so they are not in awe of Dumbledore. Um, that's kind of something like they don't um, sort of see him as anything worth changing their uh, traditions for. And in that respect, Ferenz, what he's doing here is pretty remarkable, right? Like he's a kind of, um, I don't know, scapegoat or something within the, the centaur pack. And like, you know, maybe he is like the truest follower of the, of what he's read in the stars, you know, like to try to actually um, uh, confront the, the really terrifying stuff that, that they've all sort of seen and seem to be aware is coming. Well, I'm not sure. That's interesting to think about. I do think it was interesting how they, um... Uh, they sort of cast the prophecies of man as like 
foolish and um, like narrow-minded as focused on small and insignificant things, especially when we, A, um, what's being foreshadowed in all of, of Harry's dreams are these really important prophecies right. that are housed in the Department of Mysteries and um, and how much that will change the game for the next couple years and how much it changed the course of, you know, the wizarding world history that there was this prophecy from a mortal seer to another mortal being about Voldemort and the one who has the power to bank. I mean, like it, it sent Voldemort on a path towards his own destruction. Right. Um, so they don't seem to be like worthless. Um, you know, um, and, and yet, you know, I'm sort of inclined, I think, maybe because the entire narrative pits um, Dumbledore as, you know, for all of his flaws, maybe he's the good. Um, that, like, the fact that the the centaurs either choose not to see that or or um, resent somebody who is basically doing service to the school, um, when we've only ever seen that be considered a good thing, I sort of am wondered, or am left to wonder, like, well, what do they lose here by Ferenc? going up to the school they lose like their secrets they lose their status they lose kind of their isolation and I think one of the things that they lose is the the um like the the unjudged opportunity to just not do anything right to like not get right. in the in the game right like that is um that's what you can do when you have all the knowledge and you don't want other people to require you to get in the game, you can just pretend like the knowledge is not for them, right? And you can like abdicate responsibility for things. Um, and in the face of of Hagrid, he's doing the opposite of abdicating responsibility. He's literally doing the extreme opposite, right? He took took on responsibility for his brother and then he's, foisting inappropriate responsibility on these younger people right um but i think the centaurs are doing the, the opposite in a way that's like not appropriate either right abdicate like when you have special knowledge um i don't think that the right thing to do is to um hide that light under a bushel so to speak um, i agree i agree it sounds like they they strike me as like sort of the platonic figure that escapes the, clay, the cave and stays out of the cave which a modern day example might be someone yeah. a, a Hegelian, and they believe that the, you know, basically the forces of good and evil they can clothe in whatever words they want. But he was essentially Christian. Um, uh, that good and evil just sort of push back against each other eternally. But that way of looking at things is so re low resolution, so low resolution that it, like you said, abdicates your responsibility because everything's just going to get, keep happening regardless of you. It's, it's like looking at the world as like, well, what's it all matter if in like several billion years the sun eats the earth? Um, again, that's a way of abdicating responsibility because as you say, we really do see that uh, the world as the magicians live in it is not the same world as the centaurs live in. They, they think, oh, there was a great darkness, a small light, and a great darkness again, but they're not involved in producing those conditions. The humans are. And it, it's the humans that ultimately, through Harry Potter and his friends, have to shut down that darkness. It is not like 
And I do think this is a big mistake in how people read history. And I think it's audacious. And I think it's audacious that it's taught is that history just happens or some spirit just moves. It's like, no, the spirit moves through the actions of people. There's, there's no such thing as history without agency in the actions of people. Things would not have just happened in the way that they happened had people not done things and taken responsibility for uh, producing new conditions in their environments. And so uh, I, think, I do agree that the human way of looking at things is a better way because it, it makes one responsible for one's choices and it makes one have to sort of stay on the tightrope of, uh, uh, of making choices that can either be good or evil and produce good and evil in the world. And that these, these centaurs are like, are like mutated angels who, who want to say, uh, like you said, absolute from these conditions, who want to uh, sort of arrogantly stay aloof of how everything really happens by just um, sort of uh, super, I, I want to say superficially observing the fact that uh, things, things, that large scale happenings happen because of the act. I, I, hmm, I don't know how to put that, that last bit, that they seem to be content to observe the lowest resolution possible version of reality with, without seeing the importance of acting within it. There we go. Right on. Well, um, the owls we have left. We also have out of the fire. Um, I, I don't know if there was a particular part of these chapters that you guys thought was interesting. I was most confused by Harry um, apparently forgetting the gift that Sirius gave him uh, most recently, and yet remembering his, um, you know, his knife that opens locked doors. So, like, he remembers one gift but forgets the other one. Is that, like, surprising to you guys? And was it surprising that he went back and tried, you know, the same trick with the flute powder again um, when he would, you know, he had just uh, done this? He should know that they're going to be watching you know, more carefully. Um, I, I don't know. This, this all felt like a, a bit, a, a bit contrived here. what did you guys think? What, what was the gift that he was most recently given? I remember him being given a gift, but I don't recall what it was. Well, yeah, I don't think we find out until at the very end. It's, it's like a magic mirror, I think. Is that right? Oh, okay. So that makes sense why I wouldn't have that. So so it's like something is given to him that he knows not the importance of, which sort of relates mm -hmm. to, uh, to occlumency, right? Again, that which is seen and unseen, right? The importance of the things that we are doing now. Um, but yeah, Sarah, what did you think of that? The, um, I don't have an immediate thought. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll bounce off you. Um, yeah, I guess... Um... I guess I don't, I, I too didn't have an immediate thought. Wes, do you mean when he uses the flu powder, um, uh, dirt, like after the OWL or when he used the flu powder at, um, at when Fred and George are making the swamp? That, yeah, exactly. It's after, after OWLs, right? So he, he sort of like rehashes the exact same process again, yeah. or, you know, that's, that's that's the like situation. Like detain that, um detain Umbridge somewhere else so I can sneak into her office. Yeah. Um and and like 
and call Grimald's place basically through the flu powder. Um, well, I, I guess I didn't have an immediate thought at the time, but you know, in light of our conversation, I think one of the things that um, that we see at the, I, I saw it, um, and I did mention it 10 minutes ago when we, and they had to leave the Quidditch match to go see Grop, right? Um, and they, you know, they kind of get exposed to uh, like the consequences of other people's decisions. Not that they haven't been already, but, you know, um, like to me, I think that's a real turning point in the story, right? In the, in block, or not block four, in book four, we didn't have any Quidditch matches, but we had all these competitions. And there have been some Quidditch matches in book, um, book five, but um, it's like, that's the stuff of like school you know, and um, you can repeat the same things and get the same results in school. But like in real life, you're not always going to be able to apply the same strategies um, and I, to achieve the same results. And I, I feel like, um, yeah, like using the same tactic is kind of schoolboy like to me, like, oh, well, this worked last time. So I'm just going to reapply it. Um, and maybe like, the, the game has changed at that point, right? Because, um, you know, uh, for a variety of reasons. And um, I think I'm, I'm not really being clear here, but it just seems to me um, like naive, youthful, um, uh, like a school, um, a schoolboy response to a big world problem. Um, which is funny because they had to sort of leave behind the things of school to encounter something really dangerous in the forest, which I think um, what, what they do by going into the forest for Hagrid is sort of a, like a foreshadowing microcosm of what they're about to do, like go into this dark place with a group of people who have a variety of skills, none of which are sufficient to the task at hand, but they're going together to this dark place to face something that's like beyond what they can do, but if they can kind of creatively work together, they might be able to find their way out, right? Um, and that like, at first, they're not really equipped for that because they use the same strategies that they've, that they've used all along. And does that, I don't know if that sort of answers your question. That's sort of some, that's, that's just what came to me off the top of my head. That makes sense. And it also shows me the strike it, the strike to loss or the striking loss of the Weasley twins because they have often been our partners in crime or our advisors to um, how to do crime correctly, how to use hidden tunnels, how to think uh, plans like these through. They were even a big part of the first one, but not being a part of the second one, that creative spark seems to be missing. Also that sort of guiding hand of those who have done more mischief more intelligently in life. They, they are very good at planning things out, as we have seen, um, including their futures frankly speaking, uh, outwitting everybody. And that, I think, says something about the power of just acting on an idea rather than holding court and waiting for people's comment on it rather than acting, as I think our generation so often does. But I wanted to ask you, Wes, about why is this a knife that opens doors? And do you connect this at all to the idea of the logos, that which makes distinctions and uh, fine edges? And, and do you connect it at all to the notion, and I know it's different, but of the subtle knife in the Philip Pullman series. I don't know if you saw a connection there at all. Uh, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, it's kind of cool 
because they they do both you know they are used for like opening a way forward rather than you know for combat directly um and so in that respect the knife is similar i think what happens to sirius at the end of this book passing through a kind of um doorway is is also reminiscent um you know of of the the pullman story but i guess also of you know other traditional stories about you know doorways into to fairyland or the the world of the dead or something like that um i think you know we hear a little bit more about Sirius you know who the kind of family he comes from and you know this the sort of dark past that, that he has there but when we see him as a kid you know he's so cool and um nonchalant uh that you know he's the kind of you know cool uncle who would like give you a really dangerous present <laughs> and like you know send you off to go see how how that works for you um i what to the point about like you know, trying to do the same thing over and over again and not quite having the spark of Fred and George. I really felt for um, poor Lee Jordan here, who's like left as like kind of the, the bad kid, you know, in school right. now. And he's like, just got this Niffler trick where he sends the Niffler in through the window to, to mess up all the shiny things. <laughs> and then there's these other randos who have like drugs that they're trying to sell kids, but it's just like, um, you know, doxy droppings or whatever. So yeah, there's there's some funny like kind of vacuum that opens up in in the wake of Fred and George, and the other character who fills it too is Ginny, right? She like turns out to look awfully like Fred and George, you know, as mentioned at one point, and she's you know quite um, a rule breaker, you know, eating chocolate in the library, and that's that's pretty cool. Um, so she sort of becomes a yeah, you know, we see her become more of a real person in this book as well. So yes, she also gives the idea for the um, for the the lie to protect the corridor from um, people walking down, right? Like, and she, you know, uh, and she gives it readily, like, and I think it surprises Harry at how easily she's like, oh yeah, we can just say that something, you know, someone dropped a bunch of these things and it smells really bad, and and she was like, what, you know, like Fred and George were planning to do it, like she was in, she was in their confederacy right like way more a part of their of their games than than ron ever was um which i understand which, which is sort of incredible because i it, it seems like the sort of key to jenny's success is the fact that she must have just been able to not bother fred and george while they were talking right like that's ron's problem he he'll talk to them and then they get annoyed with him and they you know they go away from him whereas jenny seems to have had such a sort of demure presence that she she could just sort of pick up on everything they had and to the extent of even being able to deceive them and use their brooms to uh, improve her Quidditch skills after having observed them uh, them their hijinks, it's sort of incredible. Yeah, like we see that there's so much behind the scenes with Jenny in the way that she has. Uh, since I think it was book two been behind the scenes, was it book two where, where Ginny was mentioned so many times she was just interposed or uh, inter, inter, placed into almost every situation. Like Ginny looked over to the left. Um, it's been so long. Well, are we out of the fire yet? What are, what are our final thoughts for tonight? 
what is it we would like to conclude on before moving on to the last five chapters next time? And oh my goodness, we're almost done with five out of seven of these Harry Potters. Wow. Um, I think one thing for me that maybe we don't have all of the data points to talk about yet, but I, given what I remember of the last five chapters and the events of um, uh, at the ministry, I, I do think it's important to talk about like team composition or like alliance fellowship. You know, we start to, we've always had like the group of three, you know, Harry, Ron and Hermione, and it's been pretty clear who brings what to the team. And then with the defenses or the Dumbledore's army, there's, I think book five introduces this idea that, that you can learn to be a part of the team. And there's the order of the Phoenix kind of in the backdrop. But, you know, I, I think it's interesting that, um, first of all, in their OWLs, they all sort of surprisingly rise to the the occasion, right? Like even Harry is like, after every test he, that he thinks he's going to bomb, um, maybe with the exception of say divination, <laughs> um, he like, is pleasantly surprised at how how much he's learned or how how well um, he feels he did at the end. Sometimes that means like you've just bombed because you don't know enough to know how badly you bombed it. But um, there's something valuable in Ginny, Neville, and Luna going with them to the ministry, right? So um, why these three, um, each of which is a um, an odd duck in their own right to some, bring something unusual. Um, why does their why does their so-called squad need to need to grow? Um, and 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 how does that how does finding gifts and talents in other people require maybe truth and generosity, truth and mercy? Um, how is that the the thing that Dumbledore can't do, or not Dumbledore, excuse me, the thing that Voldemort can't do, but the thing that all great leaders do that Voldemort does, not, ugh, sorry, I'm tired. Um, the thing that Dumbledore is able to do, like draw out the best in people. Um, I don't know. I think that that's something that I would like to at least look for in our, in our final reading. Oh, definitely. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. That reminds me of how Harry, um, you know, he's very concerned that there's no one from the order left there for him to, like, go to with his information. And he, he forgets that Snape, like, he blocks it out of his mind that Snape is, of course, part of the order and the only person there who he should be thinking of, right? Um, that, that strikes me as, you know, very parallel with the whole occlumency and um, seeing and not seeing theme. Um, it's, you know, the kind of the blind spots that Harry has. Uh, which you know are understandable and probably inevitable, but but still, yeah, to the extent that you can overcome those, I think it is through right the help of of a group of people around you, um, probably. And so, the uh, the the way that they uh, you know bust out of the inquisitorial squad's uh, goons, you know, and and kind of save the day there by coming down. If if they hadn't figured out a way to get away from the centaurs, you know, maybe they'd have pulled them out of that fire too, right? So like, you, you sort of just have this, um, this extra quality at your disposal when it's not just up to you, right? And not just up to the things that you know, or 
think you know, right? Which is maybe why tests are so terrifying for a lot of people, right? Because it's like one of the few times, mm. I guess, that you, you know, you really sort sort of are just like absolutely at your own, you know, <laughs> uh, just on your own. Um, and so I also just yeah. want to point out in passing that clearly, once again, history of magic is the most important class. It's saved for the final exam <laughs> and it is the one doing what Harry has his freak out and sees um you know what they've been trying to prevent him from seeing all along with occlumency you know I hate so to break it to you Wes but like actually he doesn't write anything on that page and then just whatever the the test giver is like oh it's okay <laughs> you can go get a rat anyway no you're right it is really important for sure well, and just, I think the point you made too, Wes, is so interesting too about the difference between Voldemort and Dumbledore because it's like two different opposing uses of the intellect or the intelligence that man has. One is to see the important contributions that people can make towards a unified goal, Dumbledore. And one is to focus on the imperfections and the differentiations from the ideal of each particular person as if he is himself a, a, a test. Voldemort or a, a so-called, uh, what is the opposite? Uh, uh, an accuser. There we go. The adversary, uh, the sort of old Testament idea of Lucifer that, um, and that, that strikes me as an important way to sort of look at people, right? One can either sort of use one's in, intellect to look at the flaws of people. And well, that's often just a cover for not looking at one's own flaws, right? To see the, the, moat in someone else's eye but not the uh the log in your own um but also the notion of being able to see that everybody around you is contributing something important and that when you focus on that and your unified goal it it just it helps you towards achieving that goal whereas the other attitude is self-defeating i think it's interesting that at the very beginning of this book one of the things that really gripes Harry is that he feels like he alone understands right. things and he al he is alone he's alone in his grief he's alone in his nightmares he's alone in or he feels like he's alone in his experience of um suffering and death and gosh by the end like at least not by the end end but by the place where we ended today um he's like pretty open to people helping him, right? And, and working with him. And in fact, maybe even acknowledges the, the need for what, others, what these other folks um, can bring. And I think uh, obviously the DA was so important in that because it, it transformed some things for him, right? It, um, you know, it, it healed some things uh, and gave him back what I think he lacked, which is like a sense of agency and can, and a little bit of control. But, um, yeah, I think it's, I think that's interesting. I think, I think, I think fellowship is really important and it, it makes me think of the Lord of the Rings and how, you know, none of those nine beings could have done the task that they set out with were it not for the other eight along with them. Um, and that there are, right. there are moments where, um, out of, uh, I don't even know if love is the right word, but out of, out of devotion to the task and to the people who are on your squad, 
um, you're able to do more than you might other than your 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 species might be able to do, right? You rise far beyond what a hobbit is capable of, or a dwarf, or or whatever. And um, I I you know I, I don't want to say that that all fantasy literature has that component to it, but I certainly see that here. Um, and I think what we see in like say the seventh book is how teams can fracture when um, when when pressured right um but the formation of a team seems to really seems to really draw out um like victory right there's no there's no such thing as as defeating this person on your own right right and well speaking of being on a team good work tonight y'all excellent seminar Cheers. Cheers. And so for next time, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, put this fifth book in the bag. Sounds good to me. Sounds good. I can't believe we're almost done with this book. I know. Neither can I. It's, it's like I was telling him one of my students who turned in a research paper today after three weeks. It's like you spend so much time looking at the hill. Or no, it was actually after an oral examination. The, the worst part of going up a hill is staring at it before you get on it because by the time you're on it, you're almost over it and then you're done. And it wasn't nearly as hard as you expected. That's a good attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's keep going up this hill. <laughs> right on. Right on. See y'all. No next strange time. question tonight, Alex. <laughs> I was thinking about having a strange question, but, you know, frankly, we had the Ides of March. We, uh, you know, um, I guess I would just make a strange uh, question. I need to look more, uh, I, so a, a strange version of a strange question, uh, not the usual sorts. But I, I was just thinking with the Ides of March so recently happening and also with Pi Day, the Irrational Number Day, I'd really like to know more, A, about what arithmancy is and what is real world, world or uh, what, what is it, uh, Alpha world, what is it you that Tolkien called it? The primary world. There we go. Primary what world. What its primary world correlate is. I mean, arithmancy does seem to also be contrasted with prophecy, right? Uh, arith or arithmos in Greek means, uh, you know, without rhythm, motionless. So like arithmetic is about statics, just ideals. And then mantos, which is actually where... Uh, <laughs> the name comes from Manto, the daughter of Tiresias, who gave her name to Mantua, where Virgil is from. But it, it means sort of a prophetic hmm. practice. So it's like prophecy by numbers. So I guess it's like statistics. And so highly more rational, but also not that which saves the day. Um, and so I guess I wanted to make a comment about arithmancy, but I, I was really wondering about what it was when I was thinking about irrational numbers with pi and sort of like how irrational numbers can be used to interpret reality because reality is also, of course, irrational in some ways. Um, hmm. So weird, weird pontification, perhaps. <laughs> that's, that's some thought, all right. I can tell you I had some pi. I look forward to... Oh, I did too. Um, uh, having some some arithmancy thoughts now, so sounds good. 
yeah, we're do, in Dante right now, we're getting to the top of heaven, we're in the fixed stars. And so there's so many metaphors and similes in Dante about um, harvests and food at this point and, and, and plants mm. and gardens, but so much about fruits and first fruits and ripe fruits. And of course, you know, you harvest a plant when it is ripe and you, that means you kill it. And so he gives the examples of the apostles, John, Peter, and James. And so there, the idea of the church triumphant, those who through their idea produce the ideal of Christ, which is a really interesting idea that Dante's putting forward there. And William Blake has some art that I think suggests the same. And so, yeah, it's just been food for thought has been on my mind too. Just the very concept. Mm. Um, cool. I, yeah. And yeah, more to report on that nice. soon. I've, I've never really lectured on this part of Dante in this way before. So new thoughts are popping into my head daily. Well, in any case, that's been a lot of uh, uh, good magic mischief managed, you two. Oh, cheers, y'all. See you guys.